1: Ancestors' village was not the global village of the 21st century. So writes Orrin J. Sofer in his introduction to his book, Your Heart Was Made For This. We are living in infinite complexities and pressures. They did not have to contend with a bombardment of reportings of mass shootings, wars, and other ecological and social catastrophes. Nor were they being doggedly chased by social media algorithms trying to convince them to consume stuff and goods that would soon be obsolete. In today's climate of overwhelm, the clear questions that arise are, how do we find the strength and clarity necessary to engage skillfully with these immense problems of our time? And what are the inner resources available to us? In our deep desire to be of help, how can qualities such as integrity, concentration, gratitude, and generosity possibly lead us to become more effective for positive activism in the world? To guide us in these transformative practices of resilience is our guest today, Orrin J. Sulphur. Orange J. Sopher teaches meditation, mindfulness, and nonviolent communication in both secular and Buddhist contexts. He received his degree in comparative religion from Columbia University and is a certified trainer of nonviolent communication as well as a somatic experiencing practitioner for the healing of trauma. He serves as a member of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center Teachers' Council in Northern California. Orne J. Sofer is the author of Say What You Mean, A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication, and Your Heart Was Made for This, Contemplative Practice for Meeting a World in Crisis with Courage, Integrity, and Love. Join us for the next hour as we explore responding more effectively in a time of great social, environmental, and spiritual upheaval with our guest, Oren J. Sopher. i I'm speaking with Oren from his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Oren, welcome.
2: Hi, Justine. Thanks so much for having me here.
1: It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. In the beginning, in my introduction, I I mentioned that we are living in a very different time from our ancestors. I would love for you to make some comment on that and, and how you see how life has truly, truly changed
2: in these times. Well since I wasn't alive then.
1: <laughs> <laughs> of course not. <laughs> Everything
2: I know is, you know, from some of our imagination and things like evolutionary biology, but it's clear from the way our nervous systems are designed that on a purely biological level, our environment is at odds with uh, what we come into this world expecting. And I think that that places us in a certain position of tension and. Um, real challenge contending with the reality of our lives. And what I think something very deep and ancient in us longs for in terms of a sense of belonging, community, uh, enough downtime to recover and process what's unfolding uh, along with a shared sense of meaning and purpose. It's easy, I think, to romanticize the past. And I'm not advocating for that. And certainly there's been a tremendous amount of uh, real progress that we have made, not the myth of progress, but actual progress in terms of things like health and medicine and moral evolution. But at the same time, this challenge of the world that we have created and how it is at odds with what's actually in our best interest, both uh, physiologically Uh, as well as, I think, uh, spiritually and emotionally, is really, I think, one of the key challenges for us to contend with today. If we are to live meaningful lives and be a part of making a better future, we need to find a way to exist within the context of our times that is not overwhelming us and continually uh, beating us down or draining us. And so this is one of the aims of uh, my new book is to look that problem head on and say, how do we draw on what we were made for, and the resources we do have inside, in order to leverage Any influence we have in our lives, whether it's in our family, our workplace, our community, or more broadly, um, to be a force for good and a force for change.
1: In your book, which I just loved because you had such a wonderful combination of the inner and the outer, it is your experience, I guess I would say, that the inner awareness reflects the outer and it makes it possible to even be able to act on the outer. So I would love for you to say something about the connection between the inner and the outer.
2: Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Justine. I, I agree with what you're saying. I think it's true the inner reflects and shapes the outer. And I also think it's true in the other way, that the outer shapes the inner and they're not separate in the way that we can so easily believe that our inner life um is is separate from the outer world, the those distinctions, when we really look closely in any way, whether it's through contemplation, meditation, or science, those those distinctions start to dissolve because they're artificial. They're created by the mind. So, you know, I've spent a couple decades or, or more really delving deeply into meditation practice. It's what really inspired me as a vehicle for change, both personally and collectively. Um I think you might know from from reading the book, I'm, I'm a new parent, and uh, that's shifted my priorities in, in many real ways, and so one of the aims of the book is to grapple with the very question you just posed of how can our inner life be uh, a force for change in the world, And and I see the relationship between these two as intertwined. And on the one hand, you know, if we focus solely on the inner life, uh, there's a certain risk there that we might fail to respond to the suffering in the world. But at the same time, if we focus only on the external, on social change without also healing and strengthening our hearts, uh, first and foremost, we risk burning out and then not being of any use <laughs> to ourselves or anyone. But... Also, and equally importantly, we run the risk of actually unconsciously recreating some of the ills and the dynamics that we're seeking to address. We can reenact unconsciously the dynamics of control, domination, oppression, if we're not simultaneously working On transforming our own consciousness in the way that we work for social change. So I think one of the great gifts, or I might say two of the great gifts that contemplative practice offers to those of us who are committed to building a better world, one is discovering and sustaining a renewable source of energy inside and two is aligning means with ends so that we're we are actively living into the world we want to see as we're working for it. That we are coming from a place that more and more embodies the kind of future we want to see. And this is this is the vision of principled nonviolence. I mean, this is what people like gandhi and king why they were such beacons of hope i think in human history is because they were able to demonstrate that you can you can embody and live the values that you're wanting to create even in the midst of a world that is devoid of them in some ways
1: you mention renewable sources of energy inside. Mm-hmm. Well, let's unpack that one, please. Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. love to hear, Oren, what you have to say about that is renewable inside.
2: Well, I think the first thing to acknowledge and note here, and I, I talk about this, I have a, a chapter on energy because it's such a central faculty in our lives, is that to a large degree, many of us internally have been infected with the dominant paradigm of fossil fuel energy and this kind of extractive model of of the modern society in the West and the global North of get as much as possible, as fast as possible. And so we see this on an individual level manifest as things like striving, uh, using willpower to push through, using caffeine to override our limits, right? So this is a reflection of the unconscious and in some ways conscious relationship with energy uh, in our society today. So just as we need to make a shift to renewable sources of energy as a society and collectively, I think it's important to also look internally to where do we source our energy from? How do we use our energy? Are we doing it in a way that's effective? And are we connected to a more sustainable, renewable source of energy? So what is that? Two of the key resources we have internally, a kind of wellspring of renewable energy. One is aspiration, and aspiration is our sense of vision of what's possible for ourselves and others. This can galvanize an entire population to mobilize when we feel inspired by a vision. So do we have a vision? Do we have an aspiration for ourselves personally as well as collectively? This is one source of energy. And then a second key related source of energy is the energy of willingness, the energy of choice rather than obligation. And this is a tricky one because many of us have been educated to believe that there are things you just have to do. (laughs) I have to do this. I don't have a choice. I just have to do this. Um, And this is how domination systems work is that they rob us of our sense of agency and free will by tricking us into thinking that we have to obey external authority, and then it becomes internalized. We force ourselves to do things that are actually not in our best interest or the best interest of the planet um, or the living systems of the earth. So one of the ways to contend with this, which draws on the skills of nonviolent communication that Marshall Rosenberg made popular and, and founded is to question this sense of, do I have to, (laughs) or am I choosing to, and recognizing that even the things we tell ourselves we have to do, in many cases, we are choosing to do them to meet certain needs.
1: I want to go more deeply into this, and especially into aspiration. In just one moment, I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Orn J. Sulphur, and he is the author of Your Heart Was Made for This, Contemplative Practices for Meeting the World in Crisis with Courage, Integrity, and Love. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Here with Oren J. Silver, and he's a meditation teacher and a nonviolent communication practitioner. And we were talking about, just before the break, about aspiration. And I want to go deeper into aspiration because it was one of the ones that just really popped for me. I just want to explain to our listeners that You go through qualities in your book, and there are 26 of them, and you go into depth in each one and have practices associated with them. And so aspiration, if we could go into that a little more deeply, because what I got from that when I read that and some of the words that popped out for me was we have the ability to steer our life, Mm -hmm. but rather than control our life. And there's that difference to control. We want to do that. But you suggest that there's a softer, easier way to go forward that's maybe even more effective.
2: Can you Mm -hmm. comment on that? Sure. So aspiration is distinct from this quality of of contraction that comes with something like expectation. Expectation is a sense of what should be. And then that leads us into these uh, kind of arguments with reality or the sense of struggle with what is. Aspiration is a sense of what could be, which opens us to what's possible. So aspiration is a stirring of the heart that yearns for or trusts that there is something better, something deeper, something more fulfilling, just or good for us, for our family, for our community in life. And that connects us with what's possible. If we don't have an aspiration, we don't try, we don't bring forth the energy required for transformation personally or collectively. And to really be connected with and fueled by aspiration, I I think we have to challenge ourselves and really question what's most important to me in my life. What, What is it that I really value and what do I want to navigate towards? So for example, I mentioned earlier that I'm a new parent. We have a blessed to have a healthy 13 month old baby. And, you know, to me to articulate my aspiration as a parent That I want to bring a quality of deep care, attention, and respect to every interaction. This serves as a guide. This helps me when I feel grumpy or frustrated or irritated or impatient to recollect my deep value and my orientation towards how I want to parent. Or on a more collective level, to be clear about our values that I want to stand against violence, oppression, and injustice, even when doing so may threaten my own comfort or safety. This uh, capacity to articulate what is important to us and where we want to head towards becomes a resource as we engage and encounter different situations in our lives.
1: You mentioned like, being a parent and you Mm. have these aspirations of how you'd like to be. Man, this baby comes in with his own personality, his mm-hmm. own needs, and you may have a direction or that you'd like to steer it towards. But this this kid is going to have his own needs, and that's going to necessarily
2: mm-hmm.
1: provide its own challenge toward uh, your need to adjust.
2: Um, just, just uh, to clarify, maybe yeah. I wasn't. Maybe I misspoke there. It's not that my aspiration is for how I want him to be. The aspiration is how I want to be, how I wish to relate to him. I'm not trying to control him or mold him into something. It's more how I want to to, to relate. In terms of him, my aspiration is to support, to support him, to discover and be whoever he wants to be.
1: Yeah, yeah, very, very good. And you know, when we're having. Um, a moment, I guess it's when we're stepping into the possibilities that we'd like in our lives, you you really talk about, um, well, I'm thinking of a quote from uh, a, a poem by Antonio Machado, which is has to do with stepping into the road. We make our own road with each step we take. And somehow I feel like that aspiration is also a matter of Mm -hmm. walking, of 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 making the step by step Mm -hmm. and making the road. Is that am I getting some quality there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I am familiar with maybe a different related quote, which is from Paulo Freire, who said, "We make the road by walking," and that's very much connected to the sense of aspiration. Um, and also what we were talking about before of how uh, the contemplative practice allows us to al- align means with ends that um, our, even though our vision of what we might might seem far away or impossible, that every step brings us closer. And just in moving towards it one step at a time, we are paving the way.
1: Yeah, One of the aspirations or one of the qualities that you talk mm. about in the book is a big one. It's mindfulness. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, you point out right away, and I, I really appreciated this, um, that mindfulness has become commodified these days in by a, a whole multi-billion dollar wellness industry. And so help us understand the quality of mindfulness. That goes beyond, okay, I'm gonna fix myself, or I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, cure my depression or my stress, or I'm gonna be more productive if I do my mindfulness practice, <laughs> you know, and all of that. So yeah. it help us to understand maybe a deeper practice of mindfulness that that helps us be more effective in the world.
2: Yeah, yeah, thank you. You know, it's it's so sad to me because the the things that the wellness industry suggests and uses to sell mindfulness are very worthy goals, you know, to feel more calm, to be resilient, to uh, focus better and be more effective. All of those are, you know, things that mindfulness can support. But the the challenge is twofold here in the way it's presented and often offered. And one is that um it suggests that the way to to strengthen those things is by um kind of trying to make ourselves different <laughs> that you know i'm going to try to make myself be this way which actually puts us in a position of conflict and tension with reality and that, so to feel, say, calm or feel better, I need to experience calm and move away from the difficulties I'm experiencing when actually the opposite is true, is that to feel more at ease, to be more resilient, to experience more calm and focus, the way to that, that that true mindfulness practice invites us into is to open to all of life, to experience all of the parts of who we are. And to find a way of being, understanding, and relating to those parts um, that isn't consumed by them, thrown off by them, or crushed by them. So the the sort of narrative of the wellness industry is the sense of do this and feel better. And the danger there is that we have to encounter our challenges, and our pain in order to heal and overcome them. It's like James Baldwin said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So mindfulness brings us face-to-face with the truth of our experience individually. On a collective level, it brings us face-to-face with the challenges that we're experiencing on the planet today so that we can contend with them in a different way. So
1: I know in your own life, you give the example of your own being mindful of the privilege that you have as a straight white male in Mm -hmm. this uh, particular culture. Mm -hmm. So if you could talk about how because mindfulness is is not like everything's going to be easy and lovely and it can be difficult it can yeah. you're talking about opening yeah. yourself up to a wider view of of life in your own particular life so i'd love for you to say something about what you've learned there
2: Sure, absolutely, Justine. I think the key thing here is to recognize that there's these different facets of what mindfulness can do for us. So mindfulness does enrich our life. It does uh, help us be more present and available for the beautiful moments. And in order to do that, like in order to be available and connected and intimate with life, we have to open to everything, to look at everything, to experience all that's there. And so um, part of that is, you know, seeing the the shadow inside. And so part of my own practice has been to look very carefully at the way my personality, my way of uh, understanding myself and others has been shaped by the forces of our society. And to see the areas that um, I might be... Missing things or enacting some kind of privilege. I, for example, I tell the story in the in the chapter on mindfulness of, kind of in a what I had hoped would be a very sort of friendly and innocent way, placing my hand on a woman's shoulder who was sitting next to me at an event and saying and striking up a conversation. Um, And I later learned she was generous enough to let me know later you know, that that felt like a violation, making physical contact with her, we'd never met before without, you know, asking permission or anything. And as soon as she said it, I recognized the truth of it that, you know, in, in, inherent in that moment was the whole history of male violence against women and entitlement to the objectification of women's bodies. And my intention in that moment was less important than the reality of her experience. And it was a wonderful sort of gift to have that reflection externally of, hey, you might want to take a look at this. And so the that was a moment of learning. And then the mindfulness practice then becomes Let's pay attention to that sense of entitlement. Let me let me strive to be aware of who I'm relating to and where they're coming from, so that I'm not applying uh, this sense of everyone experiences the world in the same way I do, which is kind of one of the hallmarks of what gets known as privilege, as sort of advantages we have. Um, and so that's just you know one example of a kind of somewhat humbling and embarrassing you know moment of unconsciousness. So mindfulness enriches our life um, and it, it positions us to see more clearly the habits and the things that we want to change so that we can start relating to them and we can be aware of them and start relating to them in a different way.
1: Yes, thank you. I'm speaking with Orn J. Sofer and he is the author of Your Heart Was Made for This. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, ornjsilver.com i'm going to spell that for you orn o r e n j j a y Sulfur s o f e r ornjsilver.com or you can get there through the new dimensions website newdimensions.org i'm Justine Willis Toms you're listening to new dimensions I'm here with Orn J. Sulphur, and we are talking about, well, at this point, um, I think we're talking about empathy, <laughs> and that's another quality, because what, what you just described was a moment where you did something with, you touched someone in a very innocent way with a good intention, but then you... Learn something about what that meant for her. And that really leads me into the quality of empathy, which I think you describe it. It really helps to heal the pain of isolation. And mm-hmm. in these days, isolation is endemic uh, to our population, I believe. Uh, and especially after coming off of um, sheltering in place. I mean, I I find for myself, I'm finding it hard to to jump back in to life and relationships and face to face. Still today, even though we're we're able to do that, so yeah. what do you have to say about the quality of empathy?
2: Mm. Yeah, well, what a beautiful capacity that we have as human beings to connect with one another. Um, to resonate with one another. Empathy is this resonance of the heart that we can actually feel into the experience of others from the inside, from how it actually feels for one another. And um, one of the things that I talk about in the book, Justine, is that all of these different qualities, these different capacities that we have as human beings that are beautiful, everything from courage and curiosity to um resolve contentment or forgiveness these are innate these are innate capacities that we we develop we enter the world with it's like we can learn any language when we're born in the same way our heart can manifest and express itself in all of these different ways but they need to be strengthened they need to be cultivated and empathy is one of the key ones that we have a lot of research about, that we are born with mirror neurons, with a capacity like emotional contagion. We feel what other people are feeling. Um, but if we are not, if that capacity isn't encouraged, if it isn't mirrored, if it isn't validated, it atrophies. So um, empathy, I think, is like a, a profound key for so much of the violence and devastation that the human species has wrought, whether it's empathy for those that we we see through the lens of uh, the other, or whether it's empathy for the natural world, recognizing that we can experience this sense of connection even across the lines of different species when we have empathy, um, we we naturally move to care and protect one another, just like the, the right hand moves to soothe the left. So it dissolves our sense of separation and isolation, brings us into relationship and positions us to um, to protect life, to care. The challenge, of course, is that our whole economy pits us against one another and sort of you know fetishizes individualism uh, but empathy allows us to to start to heal that to bridge that
1: you you say it's it's innate and i mm-hmm. i i saw something there was an article that i saw many years ago and, it, mm. and if you can look it up it's called the rescuing hug and mm. this was where two infants were uh, twins born premature. Mm. And the protocol in the hospital was that they go into separate incubators. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: But
1: there was Mm -hmm. a nurse, and this is another quality, you talk about courage. Mm. She had the courage to buck the system. And she, because one of the twins was thriving and doing well and the other was fading away Mm. and was not thriving and the nurse insisted to put them in the same incubator and here these babies they're Mm -hmm. just totally like not even full-term babies the one sister who's thriving reaches out her arm and hugs her sister Mm -hmm. And that caused her sister, her whole physiology changed and she started to thrive.
2: That's beautiful. So
1: I I just wanted to mention that story because you mentioned how empathy is really innate in us. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. that this story and this happening, this, this report shows that that's true anything you want to say or add to that? Because I'm I'm very excited about the idea that we really have this innate in us. And how do we call it forth in our Mm -hmm. culture these days? Because as you say, so much is being reported with hate and
2: violence and yeah, well, it's the beautiful story, Justine. I think I have heard that story before and it I think it does speak very powerfully to um the transformative potential of not just empathy but love. Um and I, you know, we know we know that babies, human infants need love and touch in order to grow, in order to to thrive. Um and and that these capacities can be and are distorted through experience and education, that we can be, you know, we can be educated to hate, we can be educated to have prejudice. Um, And so how do we restore those capacities? This is a real question for us, I think, today as a species. How do we weave them into our institutions, into our educational system? How do we weave them Into policy, you know, what would the justice system look like if it had more empathy in it? What would immigration policy or policing look like if it were restructured with human empathy as a core value? Um, There are many ways to strengthen empathy. Uh, You know, there's research around things like training in emotional intelligence. um, The practice of nonviolent communication, which I I am trained in and teach, is a very uh, potent vehicle. I think for recollecting and strengthening our access to empathy that rests upon recognizing universal shared emotions and the underlying human needs that give rise to those emotions. The fact that while we may differ in our interpretation of events or our ideas and beliefs and views about what to do, that if you go deeply enough Part of what makes us human is that we all long for some of the same things, like we long to be able to give our children safety, education, <laughs> Nourishment. We long to be able to live in peace with our neighbors and our community and celebrate the you know momentous occasions in life. We long to be understood, to have respect and belonging, dignity, purpose, sovereignty. These are aspects of what it is to be human that are shared. So you're, you're saying can, that
1: this is a, like a baseline. This is no matter what our political affiliation or our ethnic affiliation, underneath that it's the baseline of being human what we all really are are looking for
2: that's that's the that's the premise of humanistic psychology right is that is this idea some would disagree with but that's the premise is that this is part of what makes us human and that when we can touch into that when we can view and understand each other from that perspective that gives rise to empathy. And what I love about this approach is that, you know we can argue until we're out of breath about, well, is that true or not? And what is human nature? I'm less interested in that as a metaphysical discussion. I'm more interested in what works. What is it that brings us closer to empathy? What is it that allows us to to reach across the gaps that are present and divides? Seeing in this way, understanding and listening in this way does that. And so whether it's, you know, metaphysically or philosophically true or not is less important to me as what's effective. And you know, dialogue projects around the world, um, in areas of ethnic conflict and genocide all rely on building empathy and human connection. That's the foundation of making peace. Exactly.
1: Exactly. There is a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King, I think the quote goes like this. He when he's talking about basic human warmth, and he explains that all life is interrelated. We are all caught up in an inescapable network of mutuality, yes. tied into a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We are all made to live together because of the interrelated structure of reality. I mean, this goes into to quantum physics and and what they've discovered that, yeah, we are all inter, interrelated. And so that that has its effect. Even even if we can't make an outward expression of peace, I believe we can do it inwardly and project that out as, as our intention and somehow that is helpful.
2: It can serve as a basis for our work in the world. Um, I think that some of the challenges that we're facing, you know, obviously require more than that. Of course. You know? Yeah. But, but it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful starting place. Yeah, yeah. That quote from Dr. King was from one of his from his last Christmas sermon speech in 1967. a very famous quote. He also said, I'm going to paraphrase here something like, um, "Men hate each other because they fear each other, and they fear each other because they do not know each other, and they do not know each other because they are separated from each other." Mm-hmm. He's kind of drawing there the um, ex- the relationship between segregation and not actually having proximity to one another, real proximity um, to violence and hatred. And you know, I think we see this very tragically in Israel and Palestine right now, exploding, where um, the lack of uh, human proximity and connection breeds uh, fear and hate and violence. And many of the uh, radical projects that are have been working for years, and um, even to this day continue working to try to find another way forward, um, often are founded upon bringing Israelis and Palestinians together, Palestinians within the occupied territories, or many Palestinians who also live in Israel, um, and building relationship, bridging yes. that gap of, of, of separation.
1: Yes, yes. This is a it's it's a important, very very important moment in our evolution as human beings uh, as we go forward, and those of us who who commit to developing empathy, I think will will be of help and. So uh, thank you for that. I'm here with Oran J. Sofer, and he is the author of Your Heart Was Made for This, Contemplative Practices for Meeting a World in Crisis with Courage, Integrity, and Love. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Oren J. Sofer, and he is the author of Your Heart Was Made for This, Contemplative Practices for Meeting a World in Crisis with Courage, Integrity, and Love. We're just tapping into just a, a, a few little tidbits of what you present in this book and all the qualities. And one of the qualities was uh, and is, uh curiosity, and this is learning from a willingness of not knowing. And I want to tell a story because I, I this one really moved my heart, and I think it demonstrates a little bit of what you are talking about. And I was watching MSNBC, uh, Nicole Wallace, and she does something called um, – deadline White House and she was speaking I just I just caught the tail end of this program she was talking with Harry Dunn a Capitol police officer who was uh, on duty on January 6th uh, with the attack on the Capitol and she it's one of those moments in TV where it's real there's a real you you feel it you just feel it in your gut and they were talking about hate and anger going on in the culture and the lack of collaboration and nicole asked harry she said what can we do about this and it was a real question you felt it it was my question it was her question and harry paused for a moment And he said, I don't know. It was so powerful. It just like for a moment, and he paused. And then he went on to say, but I can't do nothing. And then he went on to say, there's always something that can be done. Everybody has a little part of something they can do, something for the betterment of others. And uh, for me, he really embodied that sense of curiosity and letting go of all of our concepts and saying, I don't know, and then sinking down into that. So, well, I'd love to beautiful. hear your comment on, yeah. on this, yeah,
2: thank you. thank you. A beautiful, beautiful expression of um, you know, some of the key messages I'm also sharing in the book that uh, we don't know, we don't know and as 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 you know, you just shared so eloquently, there's too much pain and suffering in the world um for us to respond to everything. But that means that there's also too much for us to respond to nothing. We have to do something. My hope, and I don't know, none of us know where where we're going, right? None of us know what what's going to happen. Um, but the least we can do is for each of us to do our part, is to each of us to look inside and to really ask, you know, well, what is mine to do? There's humility in that, um, there's dedication, there's resolve in that, um, and what I find is that it it brings energy, it brings momentum when we are engaged in doing something. Um, it allows us to focus and channel our energy into one thing that we care about. Um, how many people are, you know, not doing that, and what would happen if all of us Started to do that more and more. And then, you know, that, that positions us to make different, you know, changes on a structural level. One of the themes that I explore in the book is the sense that some of the problems we're facing are too urgent And too entrenched for individual choices or actions to affect. You know, we know that no amount of recycling or walking or biking is actually going to stop the ecological crisis. We, We need drastic, immediate structural changes. So we need to work on that level. But structural changes happen because of things that individuals do in positions of power. So, how do we create the influence to make, you know those kinds of policy changes? it's it's by how we show up and what we do and how where we where we apply pressure in different ways
1: Boy, i I see that you mentioned the word resolve, and that's one of the qualities that yeah. you also talk about in your writing. And you know, resolve requires self-discipline. but um, you really go into what is discipline? What is it being disciple of? And what I love, you pose a wonderful question for us. When you're talking about resolve, you say, can you fall in love Mm. with the vision behind your resolution? That took me into like, rather than efforting and mm-hmm. and all that stuff that I put myself into saying okay I will do this and I'm gonna mm-hmm. force myself to do this. No, if I just go deep into it and mm-hmm. and find the love of why I'm even doing it. Am I getting that uh in some sort of correct alignment that you would see or <laughs>
2: absolutely yeah I so I'm so touched that that moved you um you know it goes back to what we were talking about before with energy right and this this difference between this kind of willpower forcing and driving ourselves and the the more sustainable and renewable Wellspring of energy that comes from willingness, from, no, I'm doing this because I want to, because I care about this, right? And so you pointed to sort of the the word play there with discipline and that, that uh, question we can say, well, discipline includes the word disciple. So like, what do I want to study? What do I want to be a disciple of? Yeah, and that can be a way into finding this this capacity for determination that doesn't come from contraction or force but rather from aspiration and and beauty and love and i i want to maybe just kind of zoom out for a second and just frame some of the conversation we're having about you know these Word that I use in the book is qualities. These different capacities we have, or different traits, we can develop them into traits. So the the whole thing is based upon this understanding that um, who we are and how we experience and relate to life is not fixed, and that we can play a role in shaping our our inner world and the way in which we live by making different choices about how we pay attention how do we pay attention every day what are we what are we practicing we're always practicing something because our hearts and minds are designed to learn they're malleable they're always being shaped by everything we say and we do so when we start paying more attention we begin to recognize become aware of how we're actually living what what it is that we are ingraining in ourselves, and we can start to steer in a different direction. So instead of, say, every day becoming more irritable <laughs> and grumpy and self centered or something, you know, we can practice by choosing how we place our attention and how we pay attention and how we live, can practice becoming kinder, more patient, more generous, or whatever it is that we want to develop. And so the book is really like a roadmap, a series of practical instructions to do that. Right.
1: You mentioned a a quote in the book, and others have mentioned this quote recently, on New Dimensions, and it's from Howard Thurman, the mm. African-American philosopher and theologian who died in 1981. And he said, and I think this relates to the overall picture of the book, he says, don't ask yourself what the world needs, ask yourself what makes you come alive, and go do that, because what the world needs is people who come alive. And I, I think this is part of what you're saying, because if we tap into these deep qualities and, and traits that are enlivening for mm-hmm. ourselves and the planet, then we are we are acting out in that way. We are coming alive and then we ad- contribute our aliveness to the world yeah
2: yeah it's that that um that other beautiful quote of you know where where does your deep joy meet the world's deep hunger and the world's deep need right the more alive we are the more aware we are the more aware we are the more we feel and the more we feel the more uh likely we are to respond to what's needed around us kind of you know, I think one of the things that, that Dr. Thurman is is pointing to there is the very structures and systems that are destroying the life support systems of the planet to kind of destroy our own vitality and aliveness and and kind of in order to live in a society that is so um disconnected from a healthy holistic way of being a certain part of us has to has to shut off has to become numb and so the more we're able to reawaken that the more we can be effective radical agents for change
1: thank you thank you thank you so much Oren, for being part of new dimensions today i've been speaking with Oren j sofer he's the author of your heart was made for this contemplative practices for meeting a world in crisis with courage, integrity, and love. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, oranjsilver.com. And he spells his name Oran, O-R-E-N-J-J-A-Y-Silver, S-O-F-E-R, Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.com. .org i'm Justine Willis Toms you've been listening to new dimensions this is program number 3802
0: new dimensions radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973 thanks to the generosity of our listeners you too can help make a difference with a tax deductible donation or membership please visit our website newdimensions.org and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine willis toms Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge